Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, corrections committees in both chambers search for solutions to the prison crisis. And Mississippi Prison Industries offers inmates opportunities to work. Then MEMA brings new technology to the 911 system. Plus, in today's book club, Stay Woke, a people's guide to making all black lives matter. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Prison renovations and drug courts are among the issues Mississippi lawmakers are taking up to reform the troubled system. In a Senate corrections meeting, State Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Randolph requested $2.1 million to create 19 new intervention courts. Randolph tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the new courts will provide a different level of accountability. Number one is to, if we expand the number of drug and alternative courts, to also include mental health, because that's one problem, is you've got a lot of people in Parchment who got mental health problems uh, and shouldn't even be there. And we can have great success, like we've had in the drug courts, because once people become accountable to a judge and to a group, they do well. And then on the back side of it is I want to look more into uh, utilizing courts uh, for reentry when people come back out. The only thing you learn at Parchment is how to become a better criminal. That's, that's what you're going to learn. I would rather tie it into workforce training and, and then encourage the workforce training people to meet with the court people and say, okay, we got a person here as an addict. We can take care of the addiction. Would you give them a chance to train as a butcher or an electrician? And, and then uh, they'll spend the next three to five years of their life going through those apprenticeship things maintain a job, paying taxes, and all of a sudden they become a regular citizen like you and I. So, yeah, we can do this. We can do it. Well, what's the status? Last year a bill was passed that was supposed to make intervention courts that would include mental health and um, veterans, and we haven't heard where that stands in terms well, of... Let me tell you where it stands. Where it stands at 
is they gave the court $250,000 last year. So we used that money to study mental health courts. We went and studied the Georgia model. We're studying the Louisiana model. Now we know how to run those courts. And now I'm here asking the legislators for the money to open those courts. We're ready to go. I just need the money. And how much is it going to take? $2.1 million. It, it's insignificant amount because with 19 new, we got 22 adult felony drug courts. Right now, the state gives us $6.5 million to do that for 22 courts. I'm going to open up 19 new ones for $2.1 million. This whole request I'm making is an absolute total no-brainer. They just need to step up and say, yes, we'll invest in it. It's how we get the most return on investment for the taxpayers of this state and it restores individual self-worth to those individuals involved. They have a chance of rehabilitation. It restores the family unit. It's got so many pluses, it, 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 it's just not even fun. State Supreme Court Justice Michael Randolph spoke to the Senate Corrections Committee Wednesday. Corrections Chairman Juan Barnett welcomes Justice Randolph's suggestions. I was excited to hear that. And, and that's some of the same stuff that I've been talking about since I've been here. I mean, my four plus just this term, you know, is there has to be something that we can do uh, preventively to keep from just sending everybody to prison. And and I've been to a drug court uh, uh, graduation, and I see the importance of it uh, from the individual to the family. Uh, it's very important. And so if we could put some, some monies in place to, to, to take care of those things on the front end, of course, that reduces the population rate. It's getting people back out to the real world where they need to be at working. And, it, and, and most of all, it restores the family and these are drug free. So, I mean, I'm all in favor of those things. So this is a part of the initiative that passed last year that you promoted. But the judge says he needs $2.1 million to begin that intervention court process. Yes, ma'am. And we're going to work to see if we can't make that happen. Uh, as we all understand, you know, it, it takes a little bit of money. And I'd rather spend that money today, that little bit today, than a whole lot tomorrow. So, In terms of workforce training, your thoughts on that? We, we have to have more workforce training. We do. Um, it's, it's not, you know... It's not to the best interest of that individual that's being released to not have some workforce training, not have some type of job skills, um, not to have everything that he or she needs when they when they get out. And, and you heard not only the judge but the other gentleman also talk about, you know, um, documentation. And my thing is that I've been talking about since I've been here is that, you know, we need to make sure that these individuals who are working can make sure that these fines that's keeping them from having the most important documentation that they can have when they're released is a driver's license. They have to have this. And we need to make sure that we provide them with that. So not only can they get out and go to work, but they can get out and actually go to work without having that fear of being pulled over, driving without a driver's license, while they are honestly just trying to do the best that they can. So we need to make sure that all of these things are in place. And, and again, if we have to spend some monies today to ensure that, then I think it's money well spent in years to come. Are there roadblocks to obtaining a license now? Well, 
there are some because you know some um, there are fees that these uh, fines that these individuals have to pay and all this. So we need to find out a way while they are incarcerated to while they're working and stuff for some of that money is to go towards paying these things that they owe so when they get out that's less of a burden that's on them and the family and so okay we got to pay these fines so, so let's make sure that when they get out they are free as free as they can possibly be when they get out free is not free if you still have all these things attached to you when you leave so i'm just trying to make it to where when they leave they stay out and don't come back Democrat Juan Barnett chairs the Senate Corrections Committee. In the House, the committee passed a bill requiring a detailed estimate of costs to repair and renovate Walnut Grove Correctional Facility in Leake County. Republican Kevin Horan of Grenada chairs the committee. He details the bill's plan to renovate the Walnut Grove facility with our Desiree Frazier. What we did today was look at the Walnut Grove facility and get some funding to get DFA to go down there and uh, assess it, determine what it's going to cost to get it upgraded so it can house just about any class of inmate. And that's basically what we got accomplished today in the committee. In that community, there have been uh, folks that have met and said that they don't want that facility reopened. Your thoughts on that? I don't know. I don't have any thoughts on that. That's just an option. That's a facility there uh, that needs to be looked at. And hopefully if uh, we decide to get it opened or the governor's office decides to open it, uh, they can work out any differences that they have down there in, in, uh, in the area. And if they decide to open it, then maybe those things can get worked out. We also heard from workforce training, uh, Mississippi Prison Industries. Your thoughts on trying to expand that? Well, I'd like to give them the opportunity to expand their footprint within the facilities that they work in and expand to other facilities. There's some things that are restricting them that we can look to see what we can do to help them. Uh, But I do believe that having just 500 to 750 inmates working within that system is, is not sufficient for them or in the best interest of the citizens of the state that we need more people getting prepared to work and get out and have jobs when they're released. What are, what are the restrictions that they can expand? Well, they've got financial restrictions. That's a little more detailed than what I could go in today, that they're limited on what they can do as far as purchasing laws, things of that nature, and also capital investment that they don't have access to at this point in time. They are a nonprofit, but they do operate within the confines of their own funding. So those things restrict their ability to expand, and those things we're going to look at. And as you move forward, what will you be looking at? Because there are a lot of issues. We're going to be looking at certain things involving placement of prisoners, um, classification issues, things with MDOC. I've met with Tommy Taylor, the new uh, interim commissioner. He's got some ideas about release provisions, parole eligibility, all those things, a geriatric parole, things of that nature. We're going to try to relieve some of the pressure on the system. That will be uh, you know, smart things to do that don't compromise any public safety, but we'll also do some things that will help MDOC and, and uh, relieve some of the financial pressures they're under uh, and also uh, streamline our our corrections process. Republican Kevin Horan is chair of the House Corrections Committee. Workforce training for qualified inmates inside Mississippi prisons is also receiving attention from lawmakers. Bradley Lum is CEO of the nonprofit Mississippi Prison Industries, which employs roughly 550 prisoners. He tells our Desiree Frazier he wants to work with the Department of Corrections to expand the program. 
we partner with the Department of Corrections to ensure that uh, inmates have opportunities uh, to work. Uh, and ultimately, our goal is to produce work ethic um, and use that, leverage that for opportunities uh, for long-term sustainability once they're released. Um, certainly, we need to grow the number of, of uh, inmates that we um, employ uh, within Mississippi Prison Industries, and I think that as we do that, you're going to hear a lot more about the positive things that are going on inside our system. So how does it work? You're not housed in the prison. You're outside of the we prison. Are. No, we're actually inside the prison. Um, so our guys are all inside, uh, in custody, uh, in the uh, in the custody of the Department of Corrections. Uh, they apply for uh, and receive opportunities to work for us inside our factories, inside and on the grounds uh, of our state uh, of our state prisons. Well, I'm confused because we're still hearing there is no workforce training. Well, you know, when you look at a population size of 20,000 inmates, right, and we have the capabilities at this point to employ roughly 3.5% of that total population size. How many is that? About 550, 550 to 600. And so our total capabilities are somewhere probably around 650. Um, But look, you know, as I've said, and I believe wholeheartedly, we've got to grow that number. I mean, the reality is if we want to be serious about reentry opportunities, we've got to grow that number to where 30 to 40 to 50 percent of our inmates have the opportunity to work. What type of jobs are available? Sure. So uh, we've got everything from a metal factory. We've got uh, garment shops. We've got a print factory. Um, we've got all of kind of the trade skills that are out there. And certainly we're looking at areas like carpentry that, that uh we had shut down at one point, and now we're trying to revive that. We're looking at some pipe fitting opportunities with, uh, with in conjunction with folks like Ingalls and other uh, big big companies that are out there. Uh, we're looking at right now even some software development opportunities. We think that that's an area that um, look if you want to talk about real value, um, you know, be prepared to go into this into the coding world, into uh, te- the tech world once you uh, are released from prison. So we're looking at a number of areas that we can increase uh, the job opportunities that are inside the prisons. What prisons are you in? So we're in all three of the big state prisons, so Parchman, um, Rankin County CMCF, and then SMCI down in South Mississippi. And then we have a recycling center at Jefferson Regional Facility. Are people paid? They are. So uh, we pay, uh, you know, they are uh, treated as if they, they are not a, technically a, an employee of us, but they are treated as if they are and paid a wage. And how long can they participate in this program? Well, they can participate as long as you know they're not having any type of behavioral issues, um, but they can be a participant in that. And, and ideally, we are employing those offenders who are within three to five years of release so that we're actually really preparing. I mean, we don't want to employ a bunch of 30- and 40-year sentences uh, because ultimately, you know, uh, although it's very good for them while they're there, we want to make sure that we're producing um, inmates who are ready to go out into the workforce. Compared to the average offender inside the Department of Corrections, uh, you know, we are, um, I would say, light years ahead of uh, employment opportunity. I met with three guys last night, uh, had dinner with three guys who had gone through one of our facilities, and they said, but for the opportunity to work for Mississippi Prison Industries, they don't know where they would be. They're all employed in the city of Jackson. And so our rate is good. We've just got to grow our volume uh, of, of offenders who are working for us inside the system. Bradley Lum is CEO of Mississippi Prison Industries. Coming up, MEMA brings new technology to the 911 system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's emergency responders are upgrading the, the way they locate people who call 911. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is teaming up with emergency response company Rapid SOS to find emergency callers with pinpoint accuracy. Tom Guthrie is the vice president of public safety at Rapid SOS. He tells our Kobe Vance the company uses the device's GPS to relay locations more quickly and accurately than traditional systems. When somebody dies, 911 from those phones, the operating system will send the location of the device to us, and then we pass that on to public safety. So if it's a wearable or it could be um, like in an app like Uber, for example, so that organization, when you initiate the safety function of the app, it sends the information to us in our clearinghouse, and then we pass it along to the correct public safety agency. And so do people have to opt into that at all, um, or is it just automatically done by those apps? It is generally automatically done, so it's part of the license agreement. So in a case of, normally your in, your location would not be shared, but in the case of an emergency, it's part of the license agreement with each of those providers that if you're invoking a request for emergency response from public safety, they will share that, but only to the, to the uh, agency that's going to be responding. So it's generally part of the service. Most of them also, there are ways that you can turn it off if you want to turn off that, that capability, but usually it is, it is uh, enabled out of the box. What are some things that uh, make this technology so much more accurate than, you know, traditional just testing on landlines? So the, what's interesting, on the, and most people aren't aware, because we're so used to applications on each of our devices, and you'll pull up your, your Google Maps, your Apple Maps, whatever, and you can see your location. And there was even a phrase of, why is it that Uber can find where I am, but maybe public safety can't? It's different information. So the, the traditional 911 system, the location that's provided is the carrier's estimate of where the caller is. What we get access to is where the device thinks it is. So it's two different paths. You'd have a normal 911 call path, and the carrier will say, this is where I think the location of the caller is. And then separately, they'll send the device's location. It estimates it's here. We'll provide that through our service. So you'll have both information. Tom Guthrie is Vice President of Public Safety at Rapid SOS. These changes are coming from a nationwide initiative to update aging emergency response tools. Bob Busek is the Chief Information Officer at MEMA. Mississippi uh, has, you know, gone through a lot of different trials and tribulations over the years, and technology has been one of those trials and tribulations in our state. And as far as Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is concerned, our job is to make sure that we are prepared for the worst-case scenario. And when we first saw this technology at a 911 convention, uh, we, we spoke amongst ourselves and said, this is something that can help Mississippians. This can save lives day one once our locals start using it. And with a service that Rapid SOS provides, uh, bringing him bringing them to MEMA today was a no-brainer. We wanted to make sure that they had good access to our counties and our 911 coordinators to get this information out there because knowledge is power. That's Bob Busek, the Chief Information Officer at MEMA. Coming up in today's book club, Stay Woke, a people's guide to making all black lives matter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Today's book club selection takes a hard look at race in today's political and social climate. The authors of Stay Woke describe it as a wake-up call for all concerned Americans. Tehema Lopez-Benyazi tells us that the end of the civil rights movement didn't begin to eradicate racial inequality in the country. Some people, when they're marking that moment, they're thinking about the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. This does not necessarily change the way that people's day-to-day lives are fully lived. Like, this does not change economic systems. This does not change the funding of schooling. This does not change people's access to health care. This does not change how black communities are policed. It doesn't fundamentally change the court systems. In fact, there's ways that the court systems you would think are at one point in a way becoming more racially liberal and then and then change course. Like Supreme Court decisions do end up eviscerating or undermining our Fourth Amendment rights, which, you know, uh, protection from search and seizure. Well, that matters a lot in the way that black people are policed and in daily lives in their cars on the streets. Those are practices of racism. And those are structural things, right? Those are things that can affect people's life chances in a way that has related to institutions. And that's another conversation aside from the way that we treat each other interpersonally. Let me interrupt for a second. I want to ask what you've just mentioned is a small part of how black lives are affected. But what happened? Why 2013? Why one incident of a young black man's death erupted into the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, it's, I think social movements are a little bit strange in this way because um, it's not as if Trayvon Martin's death is the only one in some kind of vacuum. It is not. When Obama was coming into office, I think right before he was inaugurated, Oscar Grant is killed in front of hundreds of people on New Year's Eve on a platform in, in Oakland. This is unjust. And a lot of people would argue, rightly, that justice was never served in this way. So why 2013 and why Trayvon Martin? You know, it's hard to say why just that death because there are so many others, right, that came before that. I think it's sometimes with social movements, it's the, there's a tipping point. And in this regard, social media comes into play in a particular way because three black women who know each other and start hashtagging Black Lives Matter um, and organizing around this, it creates a kind of momentum. What is the largest issue related to Black Lives Matter? Is it the justice system? I think that's what most people think it is. I think people mostly have thought about police or people who are taking upon themselves to be like vigilante police, like George Zimmerman, and, you know, killing black people, particularly with guns, right? They're thinking about things in this way or, you know, the chokehold um, in 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 the case of Eric Garner. But the message for Black Lives Matter is much bigger. It is a framing for talking about the value of black people and that black people are and have been undervalued, that their actual human lives have not been treated as equivalent to that of other people, particularly whites. And I think the reason why this framework of thinking is so powerful is because it captures all the things that these predecessors were saying whether it had been in the labor movement, whether it had been with the abolitionists, they're saying, these are the things they're saying, if black lives were treated as being mattered as the same, then all of these goals would have been accomplished earlier. It's a a kind of, there's a totality to this that I think is really helpful for us. It, It helps set 
our understanding of where we need to be. Is your book a call to action? Yes, it is. It's also a, a, an opportunity for people to um, understand that we're not on the same page when we talk about certain racial issues, that we're not on the same page when we, when we have certain words that we use. We have a whole chapter called All the Words We Throw Around. And we try, to, we try to put definition to words like black girl magic, which is this thing that comes out of, of pop culture, right? And then we also try to put some definition to the idea of meritocracy and what that has to do with racism. So our, our effort here is, is both a call to action, but it's also um, a tool of empowerment. It's a tool of um, facilitating dialogue between people who may not otherwise see eye to eye. Um, and... And we have, we put uh, discussion questions in our book. So, you know, you could use it in a classroom, but you could use it in a book club. You could use it in your church. We have all kinds of things that are available for people to talk about history. We talk about federalism, which doesn't seem to be a very sexy topic to some people, but actually is really important for how we organize and how we think about solving problems in our communities. Tehama lopez Benazi with Candace Watt-Smith wrote the book Stay Woke, A People's Guide to Making All Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Tehama. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.